So Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 to 14. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the ancients of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousands time ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the word of God. Thanks, Kiz. Good morning and welcome. Uh, thanks for being with us online if you're tuning in. Thanks for being with us here in the building. Great to have you as we move through our series in Daniel. Uh, a series that, as uh, Kirley mentioned, has some really interesting uh, parts of it and texts to look at. Um, as we finish up in this series, so we just have one more week after this. So next week is the final week in Daniel. And today we're looking at 7 to 11. And if you're Doing the math on that, you're like, we normally do one chapter, is about half an hour. Are we about to go for two hours? I can just assure you that we're not. We're going to be spending a lot of time in seven as the key to those chapters, and then diving a bit further into uh, to Daniel's prayer in 10. Uh, but next week, we finish up Daniel, and um, Mark Stevens, who has a PhD in this kind of weird literature with beasts and dreams and all that kind of stuff, is preaching. And uh, the reason he's preaching next week is because then all my sermons are done. And so that's it. So there's no, I don't have to go off the back of his or anything like that. He can round out the series for us, and that's great. So he has a, his, his PhD was in apocalyptic literature, and so look forward to that as we look at the last week on hope. Uh, but this week we are diving into Daniel 7. The only other thing to draw your mind to is um, after this series, and I'll mention a little bit of it today, we've got a series on gratitude. And at the end of that, kind of quite fittingly, on the 20th of December, if you want to mark it down in your calendars, will be the Mork's final week with us. So we're going to do their farewell service on the 20th of December, rounding out our series on gratitude and thanking God for their life and ministry as a part of this church as well. So stay tuned for a bit more details on that as things come up. But this morning we are looking at Daniel 7, and there is one very clear message throughout these couple of chapters, and it's this. Take courage, Jesus has conquered. It's that simple. Take courage, Jesus has conquered. Because there are a lot of things to be worried about. I don't know if you've ever uh, read, sat down with some kids and read some fairy tales. Fairy tales, though, is that fables, those kind of things. And as you're going through, find yourself in the shocking position where you feel like you're going to have to censor the ending of them. Because if you've ever read any of the Brothers Grimm type fables, most of them have at least, if not very dark endings, certainly darker than you remembered hearing them as a kid. And there's various sort of editions of them that have been sort of edited or cut or Disneyified or whatever. But I don't know if you've ever read the story of Henny Penny 
or sometimes chicken licking, or you know, there's chicken little, there's a few little iterations of it. But the story is the one, if you've heard the line, the sky is falling, it starts with Henny Penny, who's just standing under an acorn tree, an acorn hits her on the head, and she looks up and mistakenly thinks that a part of the sky has hit her. And so she freaks out and says, the sky is falling. And then she starts spreading this hysteria to other animals. She starts telling a duck and then a cow and all these sort of animals that the, the sky is falling. And suddenly there's this huge kind of panicky crowd who are then vulnerable to a fox. And sorry to spoil it for you, but if you haven't read it by now, you know, you've had a few hundred years or something, uh, but uh, who kind of lures them to the, to the den and in the end kills everyone. He goes, full Shakespeare. Right? Everybody dies. No one survives at the end of this one, in this, at least in the iteration I was reading. And I remember reading it to the kids and just being like, that's pretty shocking. Okay. It certainly grabs the attention though. But that story, as with many of those kind of stories, no one knows exactly who started it because the, there's a few different versions in different cultures that are remarkably similar but then different. But the, the moral of the story seems to be that if you are someone who is hysterically worried, you're going to be susceptible to danger. To get really worried about stuff, to be a fearful person, puts you in harm's way. Because you're going to be susceptible to, to going with things that are actually not good for you. It's going to put you in a spot where you are in danger. And so the moral of that story is as her hysteria kind of catches and as other people pick it up, it puts them all in danger. And we know that it is virtuous pretty much in every culture to be courageous. That is to stand firm in the face of fear. But the real big question is, what is it that would give you confidence or courage to stand firm when there are legitimate things to be worried or scared about? When you're not just being hysterical because you think the sky is falling in, but there are real things that are worthy of real concern, and yet the call is still to be courageous. A pandemic. The prospect of job loss or of difficulty or whatever else will be on the horizon. How do you be courageous? How about in Babylon, when you're in a foreign culture, where you have no power over the future of your people group, and you are called to stand firm for the God that you follow? Well, in this story, we're going to see that the reason for the Christian, for the follower of Jesus, to stand firm and to have courage is because Jesus has overcome. Take courage, Jesus has overcome. And the dream that we're going to see in this section is a, a foreshadowing of what Jesus will do when he finally comes to conquer sin and death. And so here's where we're going this morning. We're going to see that there will be, until Jesus comes back, empires that rule like beasts. We're going to see that Jesus will conquer the beast, and we're going to hear the call to take courage as a result. So I'm going to pray that as we open God's Word, He would give us hearts and minds that are paying attention to His Word, that we might be a courageous people. Let's pray. Father, we pray that even this morning, we would be able to put out of our minds distractions and worries and all the things that contend for our attention and to hear from You in Your Word, to see what You have to say to us, Your people who are hearing these stories many hundreds of years later after they were written, that we too might take courage to follow you, to be strong, and to know that you are sovereign over all and that you are good. Father, we pray all of this for the sake of your name. Amen. Well, so far in the book of Daniel, the story has been pretty linear. It's been pretty straightforward. 
and it's pretty much moved through different time periods. If this is your first week with us, just to give you a bit of background, this is a story about God's people who lived in a place called Israel who were overrun by the Babylonian Empire, which was a fair way west of them. Uh, sorry, yep, east of them. And, uh, and they've been captured and taken to a foreign land. And now they are a people group who are completely out of their depth. They're in a culture that doesn't share their worldview and that has actively been oppressing them. And so they are scared and worried and uncertain about the future. And it's followed the story of Daniel and a few of his friends as we've gone from one king called Nebuchadnezzar, who had his ups and downs, then to another one called Belshazzar, who was the last king before Babylon was destroyed. And then last week, the story continued through as the Persian Empire sweeps through. But at chapter 6, that's where the story kind of ends. And now we start to get a bunch of dreams that Daniel had through that entire period. So it's kind of like the movie is finished and the credits have rolled and now we're doing sort of interviews with the cast and crew and getting a look behind the scenes as to what was going on that whole time. And so this story is going to pick up on a few of the significant dreams that Daniel had and what God taught him through that going back into the story that we've already traveled through. And so this one starts back in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. And so if you're wondering where we are in the timeline, that's where we're heading back to, before the fall of Babylon. And Daniel, we're told, has this, as you can expect, weird dream. So here we go, Daniel 7, sentence 1, picking up on Daniel's dream. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and the four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then, as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. And it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke into pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. As I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Well, I, obviously everyone knows what that means, so I don't, need to, I don't need to comment much on what's going on here. But obviously, going back, this is a dream that happened while Belshazzar was in power. And presumably, this is one of the things that God used to give Daniel courage to persevere and to continue to follow God during difficult times. But here in this dream, we're told that there's a storm at sea. And the four winds, which is a way of saying a great wind is stirring up the ocean. So you can imagine a storm at sea with huge kind of waves crashing over one another. And all these beasts come out of the sea. Now, why, what's so significant about the sea? For an ancient culture where sea travel was extremely dangerous, where very few people could swim, the, beach was, the, the water was not seen as, as we see it as like the beach or a place of relaxation. 
It was a place of terror, of death, of entire fleets going missing. This was a, it was a symbol of chaos and disorder. And if you want a modern equivalent, if there are kind of sci-fi movies where there's some kind of strange and terrifying beast that comes out, it's usually deep space. That for us is kind of the unknown frontier, the kind of the, the world that's untamable and scary to us. And that's also probably why most aliens look somewhat like sea creatures anyway. We have very little imagination. But for them, this, the sea for an ancient culture, an ancient Near Eastern culture, was a symbol of chaos. So anything that's coming up out of the sea is probably not good. And that's confirmed as these beasts come out sort of one by one. And we're told that the first one is a lion with eagle's wings that then get plucked off. So these wings are torn off and it's on the land. Then we get a bear that's on its side and ribs are in its mouth and it's, it's there to devour everything. Then we get a leopard with four heads and four wings. And then we get this beast that we're not told looks like anything. We're just told that it's huge and it's terrifying and it has ten horns on its head. And as Daniel's looking at the horns on its head, three of them are kind of torn out and a smaller horn comes up underneath. And it's a terrifying vision. It's meant to be like some kind of a horror story. And Daniel is obviously deeply concerned about everything that's going on here. It's disrupted him significantly. But then we're told the meaning of it. In Daniel 7, 9 to 11, it says, As I looked, thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days, which is a, a beautiful term for God, the Ancient of Days, took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and a thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So these beasts come out of the sea. They're terrifying. They're, it's a, 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 a frightening vision. And then the Ancient of Days, God himself comes on a throne. And out of all this chaos and movement, there's one who is very secure and stable and certain. God himself comes out and fire is proceeding from him. He's uh, burning bright and hard to look at. And the Ancient of Days, God himself judges and kills this enormous beast and judges it and their dominion is taken away. The great beast is killed without a battle. And the other beasts are killed also. And then the dream takes another weird turn. Look what happens next. In Daniel seven thirteen and 14, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So after having judged all these beasts and everything, this son of man, so one among the people, a human, is brought towards God, coming on the clouds of heaven, so brought up and almost presented to the Ancient of Days. And God says of this son of man, you're going to be a king forever. 
But the strange thing about this human is that, that God demands that people would worship him. So he's going to be worshipped, this, this son of man. And so Daniel is confused. What's, what's happening here? What's going on here? And so he asks the question. And this is always this is a pro tip if you're, you know, if you're having a wild dream like this. Just ask a stander by. That's what Daniel does. Look what happens. Daniel 7, 15 to 18. It says, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I approached one of those who stood there, just someone else in there having a time. And so like, mate, what is going on here? And, and he asked the truth concerning all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are the four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. So here's the meaning of the dream. It says there will be rulers, kings, who rule like beasts and trample on God's people. And he says there will be four of them specifically are mentioned here. But in the following chapters, in 8, 9, and 10, three of these are identified. We know that three of them refer to the Babylonian Empire, then the Persian Empire that follows it, and also in the next chapter, the Greek Empire that superseded those is also mentioned. So three of them seem to be associated with that. But then there is one enormous one. Then there is this huge one. The point of this section is to say that kings, when they have this kind of power, can often rule like beasts, can't they? The idea of describing them as like animals is to give the indication that they are unreasonable. And it's funny, isn't it? Because when you call someone an animal, what you're meant to say is you're acting beneath your station, that to act like an animal is not human. You're acting just according to instincts and all that sort of thing. But the truth is, it's not quite accurate, is it? Because when we are at our worst, we act much worse than animals. I remember when I was a kid, I used to, there was a time when I, like, if there was a bug in my room, like a spider, I would sometimes, I would kill it, and then I would think, gosh, I hope some of his spider friends don't find out, and then kind of call other spiders, and then sort of enact vengeance on me. And that's a, that's a paranoid way of thinking, but that's, that's the way, of, that's when we think, imagine if animals acted like humans. Whereas in fact, they're often far more reasonable. They don't often take vengeance. They usually only attack if they're hungry or they, there's a practical need, like they actually have to defend themselves. Animals in some ways are far more reasonable than humans can be. But people, when we say are acting like beasts, are acting even lower than the animals. We're acting as though we were not made in the image of God as though we were accountable to no one. And kings will act like this. And the vision is saying this is how these kings have acted, how these empires have acted. They've been like beasts, devouring flesh, mindless, selfish, even to the point of self-destructive, futile. And they're extremely petty. These are the gnarling effects of sin that make people even worse than beasts. And the vision is saying... This is what will come. But the fourth beast is different from the others. The fourth beast is this super beast. And so the first three seem to refer to the empires that are within the scope of vision of the book of Daniel. But the fourth one is different. We're not told exactly what kind of shape it is. It's just huge and there's multiple horns. But we can gather something of what this means. 
The first is that a horn in the Bible is a symbol of power and usually of a regent, a king or a queen, some kind of dominion. And so the fact that this fourth one involves multiple kings or rulers gives us some clue to it. But also the fact that it's exceedingly large and beyond the other ones seems that this one is somehow significantly different to the others. So we know from the text that it refers to empires, to rulers, but there is something unique about this last one. And I think to give us an understanding of it, we need to turn to Jesus. And the reason for that is that this passage in particular meant a lot to Jesus. The most frequent term that Jesus uses about himself, and it is such a power move to talk about yourself in the third person, isn't it? But he did it frequently, and the way he did it was to call himself the Son of Man. And it was drawing from this particular passage in the book of Daniel. And the reason he uses it is, one, because it's a very humble term. is just a son of man. But secondly, it was to draw people's minds to this passage in Daniel. And we see this particularly sharply when Jesus is about to die, and he knows it, and he's on trial before the Jewish authorities. And he's before the high priest. And they're interrogating him. And he knows that depending on how he answers things, it will mean life or death. And here in Matthew 26, he's before the high priest when we read this. It says, And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you, By the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. He said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. So Jesus is standing before the council. They say, the claim is that you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, you've said so. But then he quotes Daniel 7, and they go ballistic. Why? Why is it that they go crazy when he says to them, from now on you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He quotes this, just this line from Daniel's dream all the way back in just this small part of the book of Daniel, and it sets them off. Think of it this way. When kids are coming up with games, they often base them around the stories or the shows that they love. And oftentimes that means that there's going to be heroes and villains. And so the inevitable tension point in a game is who's going to be the hero, the cool characters, and who has to be the bad guys. And normally, if there's a range of ages, the older kids get to choose to be all the really great characters and then the kids have to be the bad guys. Or if it's a different story, kind of the other way around. But it's always a point of tension because no one, no one wants to be the rubbish character in the story. And no one wants to be the person who's the bad guy or whatever it is. And so there's inevitably fights around this kind of thing. When Jesus quotes Daniel 7, he's telling a story that the religious leaders are very familiar with. Remember, they are Bible nerds. They know the Scriptures well. And Jesus knows that they know them well. And he tells them a part of the story where he puts himself as the main character, which means what? They are the bad guys. Jesus places himself in the story as the Son of Man, 
meaning that they are the beast. What he is saying here is that the beast is not one particular empire, but it's every ruler or power structure set up to oppose God and to oppress his people. And this is multiple rulers and empires throughout time. And Jesus is saying here to the high priest, you're a part of that beast. You are the beast. You claim to be the very people of God, and yet you are here, and you are the one who is set to kill the Son of Man. Jesus is saying that the, the super beast, this last beast, this fourth one, is a type. The vision is saying, yes, there'll be these three empires that come, but then there's going to be more. And there'll be king after king. There'll be multiple horns, multiple rulers who press down the people of God. But ultimately in the story, God will judge and Jesus will overcome the beast and he will reign on high and the Son of Man will be established forever. His dominion will be forever. Beasts will come and go, yet the Son of Man will reign forever. And in this story, Jesus, when he is about to be exalted as the king, says to them, you're on the wrong team. And they get it and they go crazy. The Son of Man will overcome them all. And the crazy thing about it is he doesn't do it in the way that anyone expects because the chief priests have their way with Jesus. He is executed the very next day. He is killed. And yet, Jesus was not just another innocent casualty. His death was an atoning sacrifice. So when he dies, it's to take away our sin to win forgiveness for us so that we might be forgiven, so that death would have no permanent hold over us. So that all who believe in him shall not die but have eternal life. The Son of Man overcomes sin and death to establish his kingdom forever so that anyone who follows him is now also immune from sin and death, forgiven and set free. The Son of Man overcomes. And see, what we see from this section from 7-11 is that empires are going to come and go and they will be terrifying and frightening. Some rulers will be worse, some rulers will be slightly better, but ultimately, all of them will oppose God and will trample down his people. But he says, but stand firm, I'm still with you. And as Daniel hears all of this, we get to chapter 10, and Daniel is discouraged. After seeing all these dreams, after God has revealed to him that there's going to be this super beast, that empires are going to come and go, Daniel kind of says, look, how long is this going to take? And God says, the bad news is it's, it's going to be a while. He doesn't put a date on him. He's like, it's going to be a long time. And Daniel is discouraged. After a life of faithfully serving God, the prospect of more difficulty down the line has him discouraged. But at the end of his prayer, in Daniel 10:19, kind of rounding out this section, God, through an angel, has a word to him and says this. It says, O man, greatly loved, fear not, Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. God says to him, just takes him aside in his fear, in his terror, and just says to him, Daniel, you're greatly loved. The Ancient of Days greatly loves you. You are greatly loved. Peace be with you. Don't be afraid. Take, uh, take courage and be strong. And in hearing that, Daniel says he was strengthened, that he was encouraged. And isn't this so familiar? 
Doesn't Jesus, the Son of Man, say the very same thing almost to his disciples? In John 16.33, when he's preparing them for their most discouraging moment, his death, he tells them, I've told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you'll have many trials and sorrows, but take heart, I have overcome the world. God says to his people, you're greatly loved. Yeah, beasts are going to come and go. There's going to be trials and sorrows and difficulty, but take heart, I've already overcome the world. The ending is already set and secured. Take courage, be strong. Your God is with you. Isn't that what people need right now is a strong word of encouragement? I realize that because of its overuse, and maybe look, you, you may not be, have spent much time in a church context. You might be just checking us out either online or here with us. But um, it, it's, it's sometimes the case that the word encouragement has become a bit vanilla because it's been used so much. In fact, you know, oftentimes if you serve in a ministry, if someone says your ministry was encouraging, it can sometimes be the most just generic way of encouraging someone. It's a, it's a way of saying, I can't think of anything specific necessarily to say about it, but it was encouraging, right? And so sometimes that word can, can seem like a, a, a little bit neutered. But genuine encouragement is in short supply, isn't it? Genuine encouragement. The kind of encouragement that we're talking about here, the word literally means something that would give courage, embolden, make you bold to take risks and to be daring. And when Daniel hears, after knowing all that's going to happen and all that's going to come from here out, when he hears, you are greatly loved, just be strong and take courage, he's strengthened by that. He's strengthened by it. I think we're in deep need of this next season of encouragement, of this very word from Daniel, to know that we, we don't have power to change the grand things in this world ourselves, that there are many things that will happen that are out of our control, and yet God is in control, and Jesus has overcome, and so we have reason to be of good courage. Because discouragement, to be discouraged, means to have a, a lack of confidence. A, a lack of confidence that God is going to work maybe through us or around us or in our circumstances. A lack of confidence that taking risks is going to be worth it. And this is a year when there's plenty of reasons to be discouraged, to lack confidence. And when that happens, what tends to happen individually and even as a group is that when you feel discouraged, you start to play it safe. Brene Brown, who's a, an American professor and sort of business or life coach, you may have come across some of her writings or, or things like that in other contexts. Now, she's a secular writer, but she says this, I want to be in the arena. I want to be brave with my life. And when we make the choice to dare greatly, we sign up to get kicked. We can choose courage or we can choose comfort, but we can't have both, not at the same time. Isn't that interesting as an observation? You can choose courage or you can choose comfort, but not both at the same time. And the temptation after taking a few kicks over a year like this is to be like, I'm just going to play it safe. I'm just going to find the path of least resistance. I'm just going to take the safest road forward because risk just seems risky and it hardly seems worth it. And it's been a year, isn't it, where it's been hard to stick your neck out to serve. I mean, this was a year, as we've mentioned before, where a campus closed for us. 
That's a kick. That's a discouragement. It's been a year then following right off the back of that where the pandemic hit, where we went into lockdown. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but what that's meant for anyone who serves, or even in small ways, that, that the effort to serve has increased whilst the good and intrinsic rewards of serving have decreased. Just let me explain what I, what I mean by that. When you, when you do something, it is right that there'd be an intrinsic reward for it. So the, the intrinsic and right reward for having people over for dinner is that you get them to, to be over for dinner. You get their company. An improper reward is that you get a photo for the gram to show that you're a social person or that you know cool people or something like that. That's an improper reward. But the right reward for having people over for dinner is that you have people over for dinner. And it's been a year where all the normal and healthy means of grace that God gives us have been harder to come by. For musos, the normal and proper reward of leading God's people in song is that you get to sing with everyone. But now, it's kind of like a nightmare where like, no, one's, no one's engaging with you or like, you don't realize you're terrible at something or something like that. That's not really the case, but we're not allowed to sing. That makes it harder. The effort for serving is higher and the rewards are lower. Think about your MC leaders. Preparing for group is an effort to serve, but one of the rewards is you get to see people face-to-face and interact. The first section of this year, it was all on Zoom. And there were some people who came out of the gates early who were like, Zoom is here to stay. And like, just, just have a panel on a lie down. Let's just see this one out. And by about a month of that, everyone was like, I never, if I ever see Zoom again, I'm going to ball up and cry. Right? It's been hard to serve. Even just, and like, I mean, you know it, but even just showing up to a Sunday gathering, which is God's ordinary means of grace to gather with the people of God, is harder because we're not all here at the same time. We're here and there. Things kind of went up and down as the second wave was looming. And the reward of doing it, I mean, it, like the way we gather is not normal. We haven't been able to do things afterwards like normal. We haven't been able to do our gatherings like normal. And so it's been an effort even to step out and just to show up to things. It's been a difficult year to connect if you're someone who's new or been visiting church, your experience at church has been very different. The effort to even connect with the church community has been far different to a regular year. We've just taken a kicking. And I think where Satan would want us to be is to then say, yeah, just play it safe now. From here out, just focus on me and my needs and whatever is easiest. Daniel felt it. He felt discouraged on hearing that there'd be more beasts, that there'd be more empires, that the, the path for the people of God was still going to be a difficult one. But he's encouraged to know that God had overcome. And we as God's people on this side of the cross know that Jesus has overcome sin and death. And therefore he says, take heart, be courageous, go forward. And I think that's the call for us as we wind up this year and as we think about things going forward. On Monday as a team, now we mentioned through the emails, if you've been tracking with that or on Sunday gatherings, that uh, an organization called Reach Australia was meeting with us to plan out the, the, the next five years for us as a church. And over that time, in, in assessing things, we, we quite rightly assessed as a team that where we are as a church is what you would call survival mode. And that's reasonably fitting for a, a, a context like ours and the year that we've had, but also for, I think, many church communities in the year of the pandemic. But the call for a biblical church is not to always be in survival mode, but to be a healthy, multiplying church. And going forward, that's going to mean being courageous. Being courageous in stepping out to reach more people with the gospel, 
and being courageous to love one another in a really difficult time and season. But I think this passage is calling us to that kind of courage. And so we're going to let you know and, and your MC leaders know as we roll out things for the next few years where it is that God's calling us to. But we really want to start stepping forward. In 2021, it's time to be back in the arena. We've taken some time to take a breath after taking a bit of a kicking. But it's time to press on, to see people come to know Jesus, love him, treasure him with all their heart and have their lives saved. And so we want to do that. And so over the next while after this series, as I mentioned before, we're going to do a series on gratitude, looking at all that Jesus taught in the Gospels leading up to Christmas so that we don't miss Christmas even in a year like this. And so that our minds are being drawn deliberately to the things that we can be thankful for. Because it's a year where it's so easy for our minds to be drawn to negative things and to miss the grace that's before us and been amongst us in this community. And to round out that time by celebrating the, the Morks and, and their service and love for this church family here as well. And then over January, we're going to be looking at 1 John at the Resolution to Love. It's a book that just, it's like a Dr. Seuss book. It's just love, 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 right? It's a great way to kick off the year as we think about stepping out courageously to love our church family and to love those who don't yet know Jesus. And in March, our hope is to have a weekend away together. Remember those? Remember weekends away? And the plan, the plan, is, the plan is to have the weekend away to end all weekend aways. And at that point, we want to lay out, as a leadership, where we feel God has been leading us in the Scriptures and in prayer to drive forward over the next few years. And look, who knows what's going to happen between now and then. We may or may not get a weekend away. We have no power over some of these things. But any which way it happens, next year is a year to drive forward. The need is great. Our God is good. And the Word is true to us as it was to Daniel. You are greatly loved. You've been loved with an everlasting love from the ancient of days. The Son of Man has overcome sin and death, and it's time to press on and forward. Let's pray that God will strengthen us for the task. Father God, we thank you that you love us enough to speak to us exactly where we are. Father, we pray that even amidst the difficulties and discouragements that come, that we would remember that Jesus has overcome all, that there is no empire or ruler that he has not overcome, that all who rule, rule with the threat of death, and yet Jesus has defeated death. And so, Father, we just thank you that his kingdom is established forever. And we pray that as a church, you would help us to draw our minds to your grace and your goodness to us even in this season that we might genuinely encourage and strengthen one another, and that we might press forward to love people, to honor you in the way that we love your church family, our church family. We love those, the lost, who don't know you and need desperately to hear the gospel of salvation. Father, we thank you for the courage that your servants, the Edwards and the Renews, have showed serving you in Ireland and in Dubai. And we pray that we too would partner with them on mission here in Sydney and all for the glory of your name. Amen.